Hello, and welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush podcast, Episode 2, Prelude to Discovery. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. Today, we want to tell you about the story of the early trappers and prospectors who filtered into the Yukon River watershed in the second half of the 1800s, back when the Yukon was literally a blank spot on maps. Some of these folks will be the miners who stagger off the SS Excelsior in San Francisco Harbor in 1897, weighed down with gold, and spark the Klondike Gold Rush. But before we get there, we have to tell you about the early days, when gold in the Yukon was just a dream. It's a time of visionaries, cranks, and people on the run from outside entanglements, whether that's the law, unhappy marriages, or just life in the big city. Many of them are looking for the next big thing. In the 1840s, Robert Campbell of the Hudson's Bay Company has been trading furs in western Canada, pushing further northwest into what's now northern Alberta and northeastern British Columbia. He thinks the next big source of furs might be just over those mountains to the northwest. Prospectors were steadily working their way north, from the 1849 California Gold Rush, then the 1857 Fraser Rush, then the Caribou Stampede in the 1860s, and more smaller episodes, each one just a bit further north than the last. Could the big one be just over the next mountain pass? William Moore, a West Coast steamship captain with a sideline in gold mining from previous rushes, finds out about the Klingit trading routes from the Alaskan coast into the Yukon interior. He becomes convinced that the big one is waiting in the Yukon somewhere. He decides that the spot we now call Skagway will be the perfect place for a port to serve that rush when it happens. He homesteads 160 acres and waits for the next San Francisco to pop up on his land. Wouldn't that be good for real estate prices? Of course, all of these prospectors and visionaries end up being right, in general. But most of them get their timing wrong or manage to be in the wrong place when it finally does happen. Those are some tragic stories. Which brings us back to Robert Campbell, the Hudson's Bay trader. He was born in Scotland like many traders with Hudson's Bay Company, or HBC as it was known. He was just 22 years old in 1830 when he met an HBC fur trader who was back home in Scotland on a year's leave. Campbell said later that, quote, Through him, I heard for the first time of the great Northwest and the free and active life that awaited one there. I became possessed with an irresistible longing to go to that land of romance and adventure. Now, the rivers flowing east from the Rockies into Hudson's Bay are, of course, the heartland of the HBC empire at this point. But HBC is working its way northwest, and Campbell himself works his way up the corporate ladder in places like Fort Garry in Manitoba and Fort Liard in the Northwest Territories. He was certainly an intrepid fellow. In 1837, he volunteered to set up a new post at Dees Lake in northern British Columbia. The guy previously assigned to the job had panicked and returned to HBC regional headquarters at Fort Simpson in the Northwest Territories upon hearing rumors that hundreds of Russian-backed First Nations warriors were headed his way. Campbell found the abandoned trade goods, reassured his men by pointing out that only animals had disturbed them and not a huge war party, and carried on with the job. Meanwhile, his bosses are increasingly intrigued by that big blank spot on the map between the HBC posts in today's Alberta, Northwest Territories, and Northern British Columbia, and the Alaskan posts at the mouth of that huge river pouring into the Bering Sea. So, in 1840, they send Campbell with seven men, including his First Nations guides Lappy and Kitsa, to, quote, follow the north, or west, 
branch of the Liard, and from its source to cross the height of the land and try to discover any large river flowing westward. Sure enough, Campbell finds just such a river and names it after Pelly, one of his HBC bosses. They float down this river until it's confluence with another big river, which we know today as the Yukon River. It's kind of amazing to think about this, but Campbell, of course, at the time has no idea which rivers he's on or where they go. He doesn't even know which ocean they flow into. It could be the Arctic, it could be the Pacific. He thinks the Pelly is the main river, whereas today it's considered a tributary of the Yukon. HBC doesn't figure out for several years that the river they're on at Fort Selkirk is in fact the same river that goes past their post at Fort Yukon in Alaska and continues many more miles to the Bering Sea. And it's a good thing it is the same river, by the way, since this will be Campbell's escape route when Chief Koklux, who we told you about in episode one, shows up with a big party of Chilkat warriors. Campbell establishes a company post at Fort Selkirk to trade with the locals. Those first years were not easy. All his supplies have to come upriver across half a continent from Hudson Bay. His Chilkat fur trading competitors are already well established and have a shorter supply line to the Pacific coast. If you're ever having a bad day, I suggest flipping open Robert Campbell's Fort Selkirk diary to whatever month and day it happens to be. Either he's short on food, the river flooded his root cellar and ruined his winter food supply, a colleague or some of his sled dogs have gone missing, or it's just incredibly cold and dark and he's pining for friends and family back in Scotland. Here's an example. Wednesday, May 23rd. The Yukon River, quote, after being jammed for some time, drove an immense quantity of ice up the channel, flooded at the fort to a depth of four feet in the houses for the space of four hours. It then went off again, making trash of our houses and drowning two of our dogs. Or the next day, quote, we all slept in the garret, and employed the day in mudding and cleaning the houses, which are in dreadful state. The worst of all is that the water has thawed our meat in the cellar, and, having no dry provisions, it is a serious consideration where there are so many mouths to fill. He wraps up the day's diary with, quote, hard frost tonight, and very cold during the day, with tendency to snow. Happy days at Fort Selkirk. And he doesn't know it, but the really, really bad day hasn't arrived yet. In August 1852, Chief Koklux, who we mentioned last episode was the author of a famous early map of the trade routes from the Pacific coast into the Yukon interior, and the Clingit arrive. They ransack the HBC post, and Campbell barely escapes with his life to float down the river to Fort Yukon. Despite all the hardships Campbell endured, he's still convinced that the Yukon has a big future. He subsequently travels thousands of miles on foot, snowshoe, and boat to Montreal to convince HBC bosses to return in force to reopen Fort Selkirk. Unfortunately for Campbell, they aren't very impressed by the business case, and they turn him down. HBC doesn't end up coming back to Fort Selkirk for decades, and Campbell dies a disappointed man in Manitoba in 1894, just a couple of years before the gold rush puts the Yukon back on the map. With HBC gone from Fort Selkirk, things appear to return to normal for the Klingit and their monopoly over the coastal passes. But not for long. Prospectors have begun to filter into the Yukon. A blank spot on a map is irresistible to a prospector, and a series of gold finds and even a few gold rushes had been luring them further north. During the Klondike Gold Rush, a newspaper writer named Tappan Adney joined the Stampede, on assignment from Harper's Weekly in New York. He eventually turned his notes and dispatches into a great book called The Klondike Stampede, which we've used extensively in this podcast. It's an absolutely riveting first-hand account 
by a careful observer and a good writer based on notes that he took at the time. There's a link to it on our website. We'll talk more about Adney in future episodes, but here I'll note that when he got to the Klondike, he took the time to interview old-timers about the pre-discovery period we're talking about in this episode. The old-timers told Adney that by the early 1870s, early prospectors and traders associated with the Alaska Commercial Company were active up and down the Yukon River. Now, they were coming up the Yukon River from the Bering Strait near Russia and getting more and more into the interior each year. The Yukon River was basically a highway along which the prospectors and their supplies moved. People seldom did directions in terms of north or south. When they wrote letters or talked to each other, they described things as being upstream or downstream, above or below, as they would say, another place on the Yukon River. As in, the gold discovery known as 40 Mile was 40 miles below or downstream from Fort Reliance. Traders built stores, also called trading posts back in the day, at various locations. They would usually put these posts at some strategic point where another river joined the Yukon River. Don't get the impression that these were what we would think of as a store, or even if they are called Fort This or Fort That, what you might have in mind is a big Hudson's Bay Company fur trading post with big buildings and a protective palisade. The early Yukon posts were just a log cabin or two with a cache up in a tree to keep the food safe from animals. They weren't permanent either. If business slowed down as the prospectors moved around, a trader would just abandon his log cabin, move up or down the Yukon River 100 miles, and build a new one. But these small posts quickly became hubs. As miners got supplies, traded tall tales, and moved up and down the Yukon River before going up this or that tributary to look for gold. A lot of the action at this point was on the Alaskan side of the border, as well as around the future Klondike area on the Canadian side. Although, to be clear, there was a lot of confusion about where exactly the border was. And it didn't matter too much anyway, since customs officials were about as scarce as fresh tomatoes. A lot of these place names can be confusing, so we've put a map on the episode webpage and we'll do our best to keep things clear. In 1873, legendary trader Jack McQuesten picked a new spot and built a new log cabin or two, which he rather grandly called Fort Reliance, and went into business. Fort Reliance was just six miles below the Klondike River. This is basically right in the middle of the Klondike region where gold will be found in 1896. The future Bonanza Creek flows into the Klondike River a couple of miles from where it empties into the Yukon River. But, of course, they didn't know that at the time. McQuesten did business at Fort Reliance until 1882. Other traders whose names dot today's Yukon map also made their appearance in the 1870s. In addition to Jack McQuesten, there was also Al Mayo, Arthur Harper, and Joseph Ledoux. These four characters, and they were characters all right, had a huge influence on the gold prospectors and the early history of the Yukon. They knew everybody. Over the 20 years after the establishment of Fort Reliance, they would open a store wherever the miners chased the next promising gold find. Their stores were the places to swap news and rumors, find out about what was going on on that next creek over the hill, get in touch with people, find out where the next likely gold finds were. They would send letters to their outside friends, and those did a lot to boost awareness and excitement about the region and brought a lot of new prospectors coming in. We'll get back to them and their business ups and downs in a future episode. Meanwhile, as McQuesten and the miners went up and down the Yukon River in all directions from Fort Reliance, the world's biggest deposit of placer gold was sitting, silently, just around 10 miles away. Meanwhile, further south, in British Columbia and the Alaskan Panhandle, that's the strip of Alaska that goes along the Pacific coast just beside Canada, attention continued to drift north. 
1874, the Cassiar Gold Rush hit its height. Cassiar is in northern British Columbia, around Robert Campbell's old Dees Lake trading territory. A million dollars of gold was found, a big amount at the time, and one lucky miner found a 72-ounce nugget, said to be the biggest ever found in British Columbia. This sure drew more attention further north and towards the Yukon. In 1880, the Silver Bow Discovery, a couple of miles inland from today's Juneau, Alaska, attracted plenty of miners. This is right on the border between Alaska and British Columbia. The Chilkoot and White Passes from the top of the Lynn Canal into the Yukon interior, the classic Klingit trading route, these beckoned the prospectors with rumors of more gold. But the Klingit at that point were not keen on prospectors and strongly discouraged others from using the passes that they controlled. Nonetheless, Tappanadney's old-timers told him that in the year of the Silver Bow strike, the Klingits relented and a party of miners crossed into the interior. Back in Juneau, the miners had positive reports on finding gold in the sandbars of the upper Yukon River. These bars, as the miners called them, are alluvial sand and gravel deposited by the river, often piled 10 or 20 feet above the low water mark. The gold tends to concentrate in layers near the head of the bar, they could certainly be rich pickings. Adney reports one group of five men picked up $6,000 on Cassiar Bar, over $150,000 in today's money, in only 30 days. So thanks to stories like this, the number of prospectors in the Yukon keeps on growing. Some have come up the Yukon River through Alaska from the Bering Sea and are now mingling with miners coming over the Chilkoot and White Passes and floating down the river to meet them. By 1885, about halfway between upstream Cassiar Bar and the Klondike region farther downstream, 70 to 80 prospectors are working the bars around the Stewart River. That's a lot more people than McQuesten and his friends have food for at their posts. This group nearly starved the following winter. The reason? News arrived just before freeze-up that big gold deposits had been discovered at 40 Mile, which was named 40 Mile, like we said before, since miners estimated it was about 40 miles downstream from Old Fort Reliance. Miners bought up as much food as they could at Stewart and headed for 40 Mile, leaving stragglers who arrived later in the season at Stewart with bare shelves. 40 Mile is another one of those epic Yukon names. The gold strike there caused a mini stampede. Not only did miners from Stewart bolt for the new opportunity, but news got to outside too. Here's how Adney described it. A man named William set out in January from Stewart River, carrying a letter with news of the 40-mile find, with a First Nations boy and three dogs. At the summit of the Chilkoot Pass, a huge storm buried them for three days. When the storm died down, Williams couldn't walk, so the First Nations boy dragged or carried him four miles to sheep camp. From there, he was sledded to Dai on the coast, where he died in the store of Captain John Healy. Miners scrambled to the store to find out the news, since, in Adney's words, quote, the winter journey was considered almost certain death, unquote. The First Nations boy, whose English was limited, tried to explain. Looking around Captain Healy's store, he picked up a handful of beans and said, gold all same like this. The following spring, over 200 miners went over the past 40 mile. While, in retrospect, the 40-mile strike in 1886 seems like the last step on the way to the Klondike Gold Rush, you have to remember that more than 10 years would pass before Klondike fever went global. This is the period memorably documented by Alan Wright in his classic book Prelude to Bonanza, a must-read about this fascinating time. 
Life in the Yukon got into a rhythm. And while many hopeful prospectors, and all prospectors have to be hopeful, speculated about the big one and where they should explore next, in the meantime they still had to work the gravel at 40 Mile, or whatever bar they were working on. Life was highly seasonal. As Adney put it, quote, the spring freshet, or when the water starts to flow after the spring melt. The spring freshet at one end and the freezing at the other shortened the working season to about 65 days, during which time an average of 8 or $10 a day had to be made for the next year's grub stake. In the summer, the midnight sun made it easier to work long days. 40-mile days are 21 hours long, and even when the sun is officially down, it never gets much darker than twilight. Overwintering miners, on the other hand, had lots of time to pass with the ground frozen and only five hours of daylight around the winter solstice. Adney called winter a season of enforced idleness. A community grew up at 40 Mile. In addition to the miners, there were merchants and traders, as well as a few Northwest Mounted Police officers, some missionaries, as well as the occasional government official or scientific expedition passing through the Yukon. Miners spread out, looking for gold up new creeks and their tributaries. The U.S. and Canadian governments were barely present in the interior, if at all. The miners developed their own culture and codes of conduct. The Yukon interior was a harsh place, and surviving alone was difficult. That gave the miners lots of reasons to cooperate. There was no post office, so they carried messages in and out of the country for each other. Mail could take a year to reach 40 miles from eastern Canada, said a Northwest Mounted Police report, and a year for the reply to get back. There was no hospital, no health insurance, so if you were injured or became ill, other miners would help you. Circle City in Alaska even had a library that McQuesten had started. It was said to have had over 2,000 books, including authors such as Darwin and Hume. Despite all this, there was less crime than you might think would happen in such a rough-and-tumble frontier environment. Cabins were generally left unlocked. Pokes of gold dust were often left unhidden. Caches of supplies along trails were only stolen by ravens and squirrels. Miners traded claims on the basis of a handshake. Cabin fever could turn even the best of friends into lifelong enemies, but even here violence was minimal. One custom shows how generous the miners were to each other. On August 1st, if you hadn't found your own gold yet, you had the right to go onto the claim of another miner and mine enough gold to pay for next year's outfit, which is what they called their supplies. However, rules were needed to resolve disputes, especially on the delicate and explosive issue of mining rights. If you found gold on a creek, how much of it could you claim as yours to mine? What if someone else claimed they'd found it first and encroached on or jumped your claim? Or what if someone stole the supplies you had laboriously lugged over mountain and down rivers from the coast? In the absence of government authority, the miners ran their own rough-and-ready frontier democracy, based on earlier practices such as the old California Miners' Meeting, or the Oregon Code. Canadian government official William Ogilvie, who participated in a Canadian exploration expedition in the 1880s and eventually became the Yukon's second commissioner at the peak of the Klondike Gold Rush, recounted that a miners' meeting could be called by either party in a dispute simply by posting a notice in a prominent place. Quote, When the meeting was summoned, all who could spare the time repaired to it, for all knew that someday they might be in trouble too. And if they did not manifest some interest in camp doings, it might be a cool time to them when their trouble came. After the meeting was organized by electing a chairman and secretary, evidence was heard. When all was in, it was discussed openly and a vote taken, the majority carrying the judgment, which was promptly executed. 
The first miners' meeting in the Yukon happened in 1887 at McQuesten's post at the mouth of the Stewart River. One man had attempted to poison his partners, and another was accused of stealing butter from McQuesten's store when it was in short supply, a nasty offense in the eyes of miners who had known starvation winters. Both men were found guilty. Each was, quote, furnished with a sled, provisions enough to get out if he could, and was ordered to move at least 150 miles from that camp, and assured that if he was ever seen within that distance of it, anyone then present would be justified in shooting him on sight. A winter exile like that would be a death sentence for most people, but the two miners actually made it to the coast. One of them even managed to cause yet more trouble in Haines' mission on the Alaskan coast when, asked embarrassing questions about why he had risked his life to travel in winter to Haines, he made up a story saying he was fleeing a First Nations uprising. Ogilvy recalled later that, quote, In the first days of mining in the territory, when the mining groups were scattered with but a few members in each, miners' meetings were simple, fairly just, inexpensive, quick in results, and promptly executed. Can we claim all this for our modern, elaborate judicial machinery? Later on, however, when the miners' meetings were bigger, filled with more newcomers, and held in 40-mile saloons, their flaws became more obvious. Ogilvy reported that a French-Canadian miner, after losing a close vote on a questionable accusation, was sentenced to pay the bar owner $20 and, get this, buy drinks for everyone present. The arrival of the Northwest Mounted Police, and eventually Canadian mining administrators like Ogilvy on the Canadian side of the border, brought down the curtain on these colorful episodes. The Yukon Order of Pioneers, founded in 1894 at Forty Mile and still in existence today, is the proud inheritor of these traditions of comradeship and mutual assistance. Meanwhile, mining techniques continued to be honed. Forty Mile had what they called coarse gold, so sluice boxes were introduced. These are long, thin boxes where the water washes the gravel along the box, and the heavier, lumpier pieces of gold get trapped in riffles placed along the bottom of the box by the miners. This is in contrast to the miners on bars, where the gold is finer, and they had used gold pans or rockers, which were essentially boxes on rocking chair bases that you can swing back and forth to get the heavier gold to sink to the bottom. In 1887, Fred Hutchinson, who would later go on to make big money on Number 7 Claim on El Dorado Creek, figured out how to mine a pay streak that extended underneath running water. He waited for winter and for the creek surface to freeze. He then chopped a hole in the ice, but not deep enough into the ice to let the water in. The ice then froze deeper under the hole, and he chopped some more. Repeating the process, he reached the frozen bottom of the creek bed. He set a fire there to thaw the ground, then extracted the melted mud. His neighbors laughed at him, but weren't laughing when he cleaned up all the gold in that formerly frozen mud. Other miners quickly copied the idea. Adney said some miners were dismayed by the development. Quote, It's as bad now inside as outside. Work winter and summer, they said. Meanwhile, the hunt for the big one continued. Miners went up and down the Yukon River, looking for new tributaries and valleys to explore. Hundreds of them passed the mouth of the Klondike River, just six miles from Fort Reliance, dismissing the region as mere, quote, moose pasture. Join us for episode three, where we'll find out just how much gold those moose were standing on. Now, if you like this episode, please rate us on iTunes or forward a link to your friends. And check out the sources and book recommendations on our website. That's klondikegoldrush.org. And of course, we'd be grateful if you'd support the costs of hosting and production by making a small notation. 
We haven't figured out how to accept gold yet, but cards and PayPal links are on the website, klondikegoldrush.org. Thank you.